are the people I truly serve. Salmons, this is Year Zero. All over the news, all over social media, we hear about what happened in Portland. I'm sure all of you are aware by now that there are claims that unmarked agents began grabbing people off the street. Um, People are saying they kidnapped them, threw them in the unmarked vans, questioned them. It looked like most of the uh, charges being pressed were had to do with uh, graffiti and uh, the fact that they were infiltrating the federal courthouse. I can't, I can't quite get a good grasp on whether they had in the past infiltrated it. We're planning on infiltrating it, or we're in the process of infiltrating it, because nobody seems to have a, a good uh, idea of what was going on there, which doesn't shock me. Probably just a bunch of people from different points of view trying to sell their own bias. Who knows? Anyway, they either had, were, or were going to infiltrate the federal courthouse from the reports. And uh, I don't know, a lot of the leftists are out there crying that it's libertarians' duty to stand up and defend them against the tyrannical government. And, you know, I hate the fucking government. I hate the fucking government. But these leftists just want more government. A bigger government. And I can't quite bring myself to say, yeah, you know, y'all were really victimized here. The way I'm looking at it is we've been telling them for decades, stop expanding the federal powers. If you stop expanding federal powers, then you don't have to worry about these types of things. We tried to warn them of the dangers. And they just kept going. They just kept expanding federal powers. Well, the government should be able to do this. And the government should be able to do this. And the government should be able to do this. Okay. But when you give the government power to confiscate money, to confiscate resources, to confiscate property. You were looking at a situation in which they are going to equally increase the power of the mechanisms they need to protect those interests. This is why the IRS and the Department of Education have a SWAT team. Because they continually grow the mechanisms in order to protect their interests. And their interest is not you. It is power. 
it's like I posted on Facebook earlier that the reason, you know, the, 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 everybody's been to the bar and there's that little scrawny loudmouth guy trying to pick a fight with everybody. And he finally picks a fight. There's no way in the world he can win. So he turns to his MMA friend and is like, Hey, you, you got the, you got my back. And that's what the left sounds like. They sound like a, a bunch of little bitches out there LARPing revolution, as I said, don't know the first thing about violence, don't know the first thing about insurgency. They're out there LARPing revolution. And as I predicted, after all the rioting and the looting, the federal government retaliated. And it you sometimes you just got to step back and say, look, man, you were warned. We told you. We told you that violent revolutionary me- measures were not going to do you any fucking good. Violent revolutionary me- measures were only going to get the public sentiment turned against you. And that the only way to fight government is through peaceful revolutionary measures, agorism, and things of that nature. And then people that, you know, probably unknowingly participate in agorist activity here and there throughout the year, whether it's buying or selling in the gray market, usually doing it unwittingly would be sympathetic. Like they're sympathetic to the Amish guy who's got 60 years in prison because the FDA came down on him for making a salve. You you can sympathize with somebody like that. You'd be like, that dude doesn't deserve 60 fucking years for selling a salve that he had been selling his entire fucking life. Suddenly you wanted to come down on him because one of his customers gave him a review that said it helped with their skin cancer. It's not his fault. His customer said that. So you can, you can, you're, you're compassionate towards that guy. You can empathize with that guy. You're not going to empathize with the guy that's tearing down, tearing up. The small business that's setting the small business on fire. You know, that's that's just not an empathetic position. And so when you go out there and you start tearing shit up and then you expect and then the retaliatory force comes for you. And you're like, hey, guys, why aren't you helping us? Hey, where are you at? We're like, we fucking told you. We fucking told you. Stop this shit. You didn't want to stop. So now, seemingly nonviolent protesters walking to their car from a protest are getting scooped up by DHS. And since, 
you realize that shaming us wasn't going to get us on your side. Then you start trying to quote laws. Apparently, you do not know what the laws are. You start saying, oh, well, they were in Portland. And Portland is like 300 miles away from the Canadian border. So Border Patrol shouldn't even have, doesn't even have jurisdiction because they're outside of a 100-mile radius area. Hey, dumbass. Portland is 80 miles from the fucking ocean. From the western border. So yeah, Border Patrol can work there. Thanks to, ta-da, big government. So, you keep growing the size and scope and mechanisms of the government, thinking that you can control it, and apparently you fucking can. Well, yeah, but I am only want to grow the government for good things. They should only be, you know, helping the homeless and the poor and, and people like that. They shouldn't be bombing foreign countries or throwing people in vans or killing American citizens or detaining American citizens without due process or any of that bad stuff. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> that's not how it works. Because people realize how strong this government is and they want to use it for their pet projects too. So your pet project might be the poor and the homeless and the needy. But their pet project is keeping order on the streets. Not having their business burned to the ground. The government, the federal government's pet project certainly is protecting a federal courthouse. So maybe... These people should have controlled themselves a little bit better when it came to who they were attacking and what they were attacking. Because the police weren't fucking with them. It wasn't until they started fucking with federal property that the feds got involved. So, they should have just kept fucking with local property because the police would have let them go. But, as they say, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. You know? I hate the fact that you had to come face-to-face -face with the beast that you helped create. But at least you have an idea of what it is that you helped create. You see what the trade-offs were for those homeless and the needy people stealing hard-working people like me, stealing our money to give to, other, to corporations and to... The, the needy. <laughs> I worked hard for that money. I missed a lot of my kids' lives to earn that money. But, you know, your sympathetic gestures don't go in that direction, do they? It was my duty to not only work to provide for my children, but to provide for the corporations, and the poor. Because that's what I signed up for.
Now, in the wake of all of this, of course, the cries of fascism are running rampant. And so that brings me into what I really wanted to talk about on today's podcast, the imprecision of language and how even I'm guilty of it. And what it is we are actually looking at when we look at the federal government, whether is it a fascist government? Is it a socialist government? What, what is this government that we're looking at? So, in social media fashion, I turn to a meme. The meme says, the 10 stages of fascism. Stage one, invoke a terrifying internal and external enemy. Create a faceless threat that can be anywhere, anytime, and anyone. It's like COVID, right? Oh, no, it can't be COVID because the ones that say that Trump is fascist are the ones pushing COVID. So it can't be COVID. I don't know, could it be... Oh, you are talking like like the Jews, right? Like the Jews? Or like anti-revolutionaries? Is that that would that be it? Or like capitalists? Could that be Oh, so already it's not just fascism. This is authoritarianism. Two, create a gulag. Install a prison system that exists outside of the rule of international law. Oh, you're talking about like in North Korea or like Siberia during the Soviet Union. Or are you just talking about the camps in Germany? Do the ones in China count? Again, it's just authoritarianism. That's this whole list for those of y'all that don't see the common thread here. It's all just authoritarianism that they're talking about. It's not fascism. Any authoritarianism they call fascism. I wasn't aware that Stalin and Mao were fascists. That's news to me. Number three, develop a thug caste. Create private armies that wage war and coordinate disaster response. Oh, like ISIS. Oh, should I not have said ISIS? Oh, that's Islamophobic. Um, so, like revolutionaries. Oh, that's not what you were thinking of? Maybe the brown shirts? Is that that's more in line with what you were thinking of? Oh, okay. Set up an internal surveillance system. I mean, like 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 Hoover? Like J. Edgar Hoover? Okay. Censor, defund, and harass 
organized groups and NGOs that do not tow the party or state line. So again, like capitalists or anti-revolutionaries. Engage in arbitrary detention and release. I mean, like Cuba? Cuba does that, right? I think I've seen that at a baseball game. Target specific individuals, harass, shame, and criminalize them. Like the 1%. Is that what we're talking about? Do we need to shame the 1%? The tippity-top 1%? Like like y'all do there? Control the distribution of information. Oh, is this similar to like getting people kicked off of Twitter for spreading news that you don't like? Or having um, Snopes fact check every meme and article that's posted on Facebook like like that criminalize pundits protesters and dissidents make opposition treasonous capitalists and anti-revolutionaries right that's what we're talking about and then there's a red arrow there it says you are here in between number nine and number 10. And number 10, suspend the rule of law. Okay. So as I said, these are not the 10 stages of fascism. These are 10 signs of authoritarianism. Right? Right. This is not fascism. These people wouldn't know a fascist if it kicked them in the face. But what is fascism? I'll get there. First, I want to define a couple of terms. The first term is Marxism. Now, Marxism is a socioeconomic system. And everybody has heard the, the slogan from each according to their ability to each according to their needs, right? But that's not all Marxism says. Marxism talks a lot about revolution. And the purpose of revolution is to As Marx put it, to get rid of classes, because once the proletariat has overthrown the bourgeoisie, there will no no longer be a class structure, right? And once that class structure is eliminated, the proletariat will be have will have ascended to their rightful place as as the supreme class. Basically. So, no class, but a supreme class. Excuse me. So, in the series Trotsky, which I found this especially, especially interesting. In the series Trotsky, there's a scene where he says that 
social legislation is not the goal. That the goal is always revolution. But that they will always take social and economic gains on the path to revolution. But never stop fighting towards revolution. Right? And then Marx points out in the Communist Manifesto that middle class is commonly conservative, wishing to roll back to the days of yesteryear, wherein things were a little bit more comfortable for them and better for them. But they under, but but Marxist scholars understand that with the furtherance of socioeconomic redistribution, you destroy the middle class, creating a revolutionary mindset among the middle class that had acted as a buffer for the bourgeoisie. And the goal being revolution, the ends justifies the means. The long-term revolution ascending the proletariat to their rightful throne justifies the present pain and suffering of the middle class in order to transform the middle class into revolutionaries. The job of Marxists is constant evangelism and pressure on the bourgeoisie for incremental reforms that rob the middle class and upper class of wealth, knowing the pain will affect the middle class more immediately, and therefore they will be more susceptible to the Marxist message of revolution. Because once they've lost everything that they had worked their whole lives to gain, due to the reforms that the government passes, that the bourgeois pushes through, then they will join the the other lower class civilians in fighting the bourgeois. So, in other words... Or another way that Marx says it is that when you see riots or protests in the street, it is not meant to get an immediate gain. It is not meant to get that immediate um, payout, no matter what they're protesting. What it is meant to do, it's meant to influence a wider uh wider array of people to join the revolution. And so it's about increasing the numbers incrementally as you make these reforms and as these changes go into place, you are constantly growing your numbers incrementally because less and less people are able to occupy that middle class. So when you play that gotcha move, well, you just want everybody equally poor. You don't care how wealthy uh, the poorest person is. It doesn't move the needle with them because their goal is for to get as many people into the revolution as possible. Therefore, the more poor they are, or there are, the more bodies they will likely have for the revolution in order to overthrow the bourgeoisie. So, even though you think that your gotcha works, and it's consistent, given they're supposed to be the 
have a sympathetic point of view, when you tell them, well, the what you're doing, the policies that you're uh, that you're inflicting are disproportionately hurting the poor. They don't care. The point isn't to help the poor today. The point is to revolutionize the poor in order to have the long-term goal of a successful revolution. Your immediate gratification today means nothing. This is a delayed strategy, delayed gratification. This is a long-term goal. And they don't care who gets hurt today. The ends justifies the means. So that would be my description of Marxism. A socio-economic system based on revolution and equity. Now, capitalism. A lot of people say that the problem with America is capitalism. And there are a lot of people that get very offended by that position. So, Gary Chartier has three definitions of capitalism. Basically, he calls it three senses of capitalism, or you could call it three stages of capitalism. There is capitalism one, an economic system that features personal property rights and voluntary exchanges of goods and services. When you talk to a Randian or an anarcho-capitalist, uh, a Misesian, a Rothbardian, this is what they are talking about. This is their definition of capitalism. You can point out all day long, all around us, that the system in which we live beneath doesn't match up to this definition. And they will acknowledge that. And they will say well, that's because we don't live in a capitalist system. We live in a corporatist system. But as early as the 1780s, Thomas Hodgkins was using capitalism as a pejorative to describe the type of system we see today. Marx used it as a pejorative as well. I have a hard time finding anybody using capitalism as anything but a pejorative prior to the Industrial Revolution. So, this is a, a newer definition of what capitalism is. It's not a pure definition, but you must understand <clears throat> when you're talking to a libertarian or an anarcho-capitalist, this is what they think. This is what they are defining. 
these are these this is what the term means to them an economic system that features personal property rights and voluntary exchanges of goods and services that is what capitalism is to them then there's capitalism too an economic system that features a symbiotic relationship between big business and government that is what the I'm trying to think of a good good example of this that is kind of like a description of America in during the industrial revolution like that really describes and I'm going to get into this a little more that's why I'm trying to avoid getting into it now but really describes what we saw during the progressive era is is the economic system that features a symbiotic relationship between big business and government <clears throat> oh boogie you're just tearing everything up why is my pillow on the floor you knocked the hard hat in water you're just having a good old time back there aren't you buddy oh sorry and then there's capitalism three rule of workplaces society and the state by capitalists that is by a relatively small number of people who control investable wealth and the means of production Uh, that is that if we are not full-blown capitalism three we are right on the verge of capitalism three and a lot of people would tell you socialists um especially communists marxists would tell you that's where we're at we're right in the midst of capitalism three that and there and, and, and with good evidence, I mean, we all know that these corporations, these moneyed interests, these bankers use their money to influence elections and legislation, regulations. We all know that happens. This isn't something new to us. So it's not the it's not absurd to say that is the system that we live under and that when a socialist or an anti-capitalist of any sort is demonizing capitalism that is what they're talking about they're not talking about free voluntary exchange they're not talking about a symbiotic relationship between government and corporations they are talking about the rule of the state of the markets by corporations and there is some evidence that 
even if we are not fully there, we are almost there. So, from a Charles Johnson article, I want to further expand on what it is we see as three tenets of capitalism. One would be a government monopolies and cartels in which government penalties directly suppress competition or erect effective barriers to entry against newcomers or substitute goods and services. Number two, regressive redistribution in which property is directly seized from ordinary workers by government expropriation and transferred to economically powerful beneficiaries. Think eminent domain. In the form of tax-funded subsidies and corporate welfare, taxpayer-backed sweetheart loans, the widespread use of eminent domain to seize property, there you go, from small owners and transfer it to big commercial developers, etc. And number three, captive markets in which demand for a good is created or artificially ratcheted up by government coercion, which can mean a direct mandate with penalties inflicted on those who do not buy in or a situation in which market actors are driven into a market on artificially disadvantageous these prints really small terms as an indirect, perhaps even unintended, ripple effect of prior government interventions. Obamacare would be a perfect example of a captive market. So, when many of us are talking about capitalism, these are the things that we see as defining capitalism. Not free, voluntary markets, but markets that are propped up by the government. And whose only reward is assured by the government, whose success is assured by the government. So, that, defining those terms for me was important at the beginning here, because capitalism and Marxism are used all the time in many different ways. And I wanted to make sure that we had a working definition. In for the sake of this podcast, we are going to use a capitalism as a combination of capitalism two and capitalism three. So businesses ruling over the marketplace and over the state and businesses having a symbiotic relationship with government. Right? So it's going to be kind of like a right. It's going to be like capitalism two and a half is what we're looking at. So that's where we're going to be at during this podcast. And I'm doing that for a reason, because I'm talking about, if you haven't guessed, fascism, socialism, and progressivism. 
And we are going to try to figure out why America is a progressive country as fully intended from the progressive era, and it is not a fascist or socialist country. That those terms are used hyperbolically, sometimes by some people, interchangeably. But they are inaccurate, they're not precise in the description of what America is. So, now that we are just getting started, and we are sitting at 36 minutes into the podcast, I can promise you this is going to get a little bit (laughs) long-winded because I have some things I want to read and clarify and talk about and compare and contrast, and then we will finish it up. So, first off, as I mentioned earlier, what is fascism? According to John T. Flynn from the book As We Go Marching, it is a system of social organization in which the political state is a dictatorship supported by a political elite and in which the economic society is an autarchical capitalism, enclosed and planned, in which the government assumes responsibility for creating adequate purchasing power through the instrumentality of national debt and in which militarism is adopted as a great economic project for creating work as well as a great romantic project in the service of the imperial estate. That sounds a lot like America. It does. I'm not going to lie to you. It sounds an awful lot like America. Broken down, it includes these devices. A government whose powers are unrestrained, a leader who is a dictator, absolute in power, but responsible to the party, which is a preferred elite, an economic system in which production and distribution are carried on by private owners, but in accordance with plans made by the state directly or under its immediate supervision, These plans involve control of all the instruments of production and distribution through great government bureaus, which have the power to make regulations or directives with the force of law. They involve also the comprehensive integration of government and private finances, under which investment is directed and regimented by the government, so that while ownership is private and production is carried on by private owners, There is a type of socialization of investment of the financial aspects of production. By this means the state, which by law and by regulation can exercise a powerful control over industry, can enormously expand and complete that control by assuming the role of banker and partner. Number six, they involve also the device of creating streams of purchasing power by federal government borrowing and spending as a permanent institution. 
Number seven, as a necessary consequence of all this, militarism becomes an inevitable part of the system since it provides the easiest means of draining great numbers annually from the labor market and of creating a tremendous industry for the production of arms for defense which industry is supported wholly by government borrowing and spending number eight imperialism becomes an essential element of such a system where that is possible particularly in the strong states since the whole fascist system despite its promises of abundance necessitates great financial and personal sacrifices which people cannot be induced to make in the interest of the ordinary objectives of civil life in which they will submit to only when they are presented with some national crusade or adventure on the heroic model touching deeply the springs of chauvinistic pride, interest, and feeling. All right. So, according to John T. Flynn, and by that description, America is a fascist nation. Now, this book, as we go marching, describes fascism under Italy, under Mussolini, then Nazism, fascism under Hitler, and then America as marching into fascism. And according to that definition and those that outline, America has been a fascist nation since before he wrote this book. <laughs> so, unfortunately for him, he couldn't label early America under Woodrow Wilson as fascist because fascism, or even under Theodore Roosevelt as fascist, or under Thomas Jefferson as fascist. But, and I say that because of the imperialism, uh, the westward expansion, you know. So, have fun with those thought experiments. But fascism didn't exist as an ideology until after World War I, when Benito Mussolini, who was a tops, top Marxist student gave up on socialism and he turned to Plato um, hold on he turned to reading Plato and Vilfredo Pre- uh, I always pr- mispronounce this um Preto, as well as, and I'm getting to where I'm trying to, George, Georges Sorrel, and then Nietzsche. And through the influences of Plato, Georges Sorrel, and Nietzsche, and Pareto, who, if you know Pareto, he um, 
He is the creator of Preto Distribution. And the Preto Principle and all kinds of other interesting um, ideas that were named after him. If you don't know what Preto Distribution is, that is used in description of social, scientific, geophysical, actuarial, and many other types of observable, observable phenomenon. It was originally applied to describing the distribution of wealth in society, which is what his real interest was, was why is it that instead of this slow upward, like kind of pyramid slant, why, why is, why is wealth distributed at such a, at such a crazy arc, which means that it's really fat on the bottom. You got this long poverty rate, real slow increase. And then when it hits a certain point, it just rises exponentially. And so instead of being shaped like a pyramid, it was more shaped like an arrow. And he found that really strange and wanted to know why. So he did a lot of studying on that. And so, through studying Prado, um, and his education under Marxism, Mussolini came up with the economic system of fascism, which he described as corporatism. And um, so, it would have been hard capitalism three. I mean, they skipped everything else and just went hard capitalism three. None of this mealy mouth fucking bullshit where the government and business is symbiotic. No, no. Capitalism was going to be like these businesses were going to rule. They were going to get what they wanted, when they wanted, the way they wanted it, how they wanted it. And he was going to ensure that. And in order to make sure that um, a successor didn't ruin the economy, he made himself dictator. Right? And so you see the the kind of mimicking of, of that by Hitler... In many ways, using the Mussolini methods in in business and banking in order to to prop up the the fascist system in Germany. So I kind of got into a, a rabbit hole here, so I'm trying to find. The damn, uh, here it is. All right. So I found, I, I read a bunch of art articles on the differences between fascism and socialism, and not because I needed. Uh, 
I needed a couple of things explained to me. And none of the articles I found got into it. But obviously Mussolini, even though he abandoned Marxism, as far as hardcore Marxism, uh, constant revolution, um, and, and things of that nature, he was obviously influenced by his Marxist background. And Prado, the Prado distribution model has been used all over the place. And it was widely used by progressives in America to figure out their ideas of redistribution. And so I wanted kind of to give you a little bit of this article and what they're saying the difference is between fascism and socialism is. Now, one thing you have to understand about fascism, socialism, and progressivism. Well, a couple of things. They have certain things in common. Number one, they are all centrally planned economies. Every single one of them. Number two, they all are, ant- are, are puritanical. Because in each system, you are expected to be productive, to work, to um, and, and they're all very collective, using different languages, but in many of the same ways. Okay? So, in this article, it mentions that there are three main pillars of fascism. Everything in the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. Fascism exalts nation and race over the individual. Fascism under Mussolini did not start off using race. That was something he adopted later on. But I'm just going by this article. I'm just clarifying what I do know that that is a little bit skewed. It's centralized, authoritarian, and often dictatorial government. Strong and charismatic leaders are, are very normal. Strict governmental control over opposition, freedom of speech, and freedom of assembly. Severe social regulations, crucial roles of heroes, you know, think about militarization and stuff. <coughs> Strong attachment to moral nationalistic values, glory of the state over the individual. The individual is required to put the interest of the state before his personal goals or needs. Strong governmental involvement in economy and production. 
The state has strong influence over investment in industries. In order to receive the support of the government, businesses need to promise that their main interest is the enhancement of the country. And it's opposed to free market economy. In some instances, international trade is opposed because of the primacy of the nationalist feeling. So you'll see some of that, like glimmers of that in American society. You do. I mean, there are a lot of American Americans that are very nationalistic. You, you've all heard the um, buy American ads and things of that nature. So there's when somebody calls American America fascist, it's kind of like, eh, okay. I mean, do we really want to get extremely pedantic and ba- break it down? You know, like America doesn't really have a dictator unless you ca- count the you know existing bureaucracy as dictatorial and the the president as just a figurehead, which, I mean, that's obvious. That's that's a um, a theory. I I kind of way back and forth, you know, when when you see all the promises presidents make when they're up for election, and then what they do when they get into office is just more of the same. And 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 you're going to tell me that, um, in terms of Yemen or Afghanistan or or Libya. Um, Saudi Arabia, Israel, there's no difference between um, Bill Clinton and George Bush and Obama and Trump. Like, they're all just going to kind of keep the same policies going. But that that brings you back to the grand chessboard by Zbigniew Brzezinski and how he laid out the geopolitical plan of American hegemony around the around the globe and how that was to be played out. And so that's a long, intricate conversation within itself. So there is the argument to be made that the the permanent bureaucracies, otherwise known as the deep state, or as John Kiriakou calls it, the permanent government that is in place uh, through, not through elections, but through appointments and uh, rising through the ranks you know, um, of, of the bureaucracies is actually, you know, the, are the ones that are actually in charge of legislation and governing the country and that the president is just a figurehead. And, um, then, you know, that may explain some of the problems that Trump has had, you know, how he came in not wanting to be a figurehead, but wanting to be the executive and the the bureaucrats and decided to ambush him and have been fighting him tooth and nail along the way. Very possible. And so, but that's beside the point. It's very easy to see the fascistic elements that America holds um, within its governmental structure. Now, 
as ex- to be expected, this article is a little soft on socialism. Um, it does not recognize, kind of like what I was showing you earlier whenever I read that meme, and that's the reason I read that meme. It does not recognize that socialism, even in Marx, says that despots are necessary, at least for a short time, in order to to get things in order. And that's how you end up with a Stalin or a Mao or a Fidel Castro or a you know Kim Jong-il, Kim Il-sung. And so... It, it's, it doesn't recognize the, the despotism that is inherent with socialism, though we all know that it's there. So it says, socialism is an economic and social theory advocating for social ownership and democratic control of the means of production. Now, the democratic control, to me, is very telling. That's how they see cancel culture. They don't see it as cancel culture. They see it as a democratic consensus standing up and democratically deciding who gets to speak, who has a platform and who doesn't. And I I find that to be a more nuanced way of looking at their perspective on what is happening, whether you want to agree with what they're doing or not, which I do not, there is something to be said that for, for a people that have been preached at democracy so long, so intensely to the point where it's, it's, they speak about it as if it's virtuous to democratically decide who has a platform and who doesn't is their ideal. They want to democratically decide which products are to be made and not made. Okay, so it goes on. Socialism has a strong governmental involvement in production and redistribution of goods and wealth. Abolition of private property. Means of production are controlled and owned by the state. No one besides the state has control over resources. Production is directly and solely for use. So there's no excess. Emphasis on equality rather than achievement. Primacy of the community over the individual. Um, so, so here you can see quite a few differences. You have the primacy of the community in socialism, wherein in uh, fascism it would be primacy of the nation, right? So, 
whatever's good for the community or the nation overrides individual liberty. That there is that there is no such thing as individual liberty when it comes to these uh, these ideologies that that you would you have to sacrifice of yourself in order to benefit either the nation or the community, however you want to talk about it, right? In progressivism, it's mentioned as the nation, but in modern terms, we say society, right? Social justice. We get the social contract. Everything's society, right? So, I don't think I have to cover any more of the socialism and fashion, but I think you have a decent idea of what those two are. Um, this podcast is already longer than I normally go. And, uh, you know, yeah, shit, I'm over an hour already. So I want to get into progressivism and why it is in, in the fact that it is a, that it is purely American. In that the progressive movement is the, you know, the German equivalent to um, to fascism, and you know, um, or or the equivalent to socialism in other places, you know, um, whether it be, you know, India or, you know, Catalonia or whatever, Spain, however you want to look at it, um, the Cuba, (laughs) that the, the progressivism was purely American, that in many of the ways that that the fascists in Germany and in Italy were heavily dependent on Darwinism and on science. Progressivism was heavily dependent on, on eugenics and in science and DNA. It was very scientific in the way that it approached it. And, and when you look at progressivism is similar as it is to fascism in many of its tenets, it's also very similar to what Marx labeled bourgeois socialism, where everything exists for the benefit of the working class, including the bourgeois themselves. Like, I wouldn't even be here if the working class didn't need me. But because the working class needs a bourgeois to ensure that they have jobs, to ensure that the the shelves are stocked, to ensure that everything's managed, the cities are managed properly, 
that that's why I exist. I'm here in this position of power with the riches I have in order to serve philanthropic, you know, think Bill Gates, the philanthropy specialist, you know, and, and that's the kind of the vibe that they try to put out there. And that's, Marx would see very, draw very similar comparisons to American progressivism and the, 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 the bourgeois socialism that was um, Prussia. Or, or, or Germany prior to World War One, which would have been, I guess, Prussia at the time. So, just to show you, kind of, this whole everything for the working class. I'm gonna, I, I wrote a little bit out here. I'm gonna read it off to you because you're you're gonna recognize all this stuff. This isn't like we're. All these things are going to overlap in many different ways because they're so uh, interwoven in the ideals of collectivism and destroying natural law. Like They're all very anti-natural law, very anti-individual rights. The society, the collective, the nation is always above and beyond the individual. That the individual's rights are less important. Right. So progressive implemented cartels to the benefit of the working class. Cartels like the Federal Reserve, the railroads, the pharmaceutical industry, insurance industry, car manufacturers, weapons manufacturers. Claiming that the taxpayers are responsible to these industries in order to continue their comfortable lifestyle only made possible to the existence of due to the existence of the cartels maintained by the state. We have welfare for the benefit of the working class, whether corporate or individual. This creates a parasite class and a productive class to divide the citizenry while praising the social cohesion created by the redistribution. We got protectionism disguised as a free market and free trade to the benefit of the working class. We have imperialism sold as strong national identity to the benefit of the working class. We have anti-discrimination laws enforcing the authority of the majority to, to private property to the benefit of the working class. Let me see, where was I? Come on, man. Stop it. Um, there's eminent domain, redistributing property from the working class to the wealthy in order to create income that may be redistributed to the parasite class to the benefit of the working class. And anything that benefits the few sold as being for the benefit of the many, to hell with your individual rights. It's all about the working class. It's all about 
as Marx would put it, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. And so it is not a Marxist, but a capitalist system that allows this kind of redistribution. And why? Why, why would that be? Well, because the elements of a possible revolution are the same under progressivism as they are under socialism. It's just that when the progressives created the progressive ideals, the progressive era, it was run and controlled by the businesses, by businessmen, intermingling with upper middle class men. But it was all men in the top 10% of income earners that were pushing the progressive agenda and selling it to the lower class, the lower middle class, and the middle class. This was the this was the response to socialism in many ways. It was a collective again a, a bourgeois socialism in order to block the potentiality of revolution. They wanted to stop the proletariat from rising up against the bourgeois. Knowing the history of labor in the United States and the labor wars that had taken place, they felt that they could stop that kind of conflict, that physical conflict between laborers and themselves by implementing a collectivist ideal sold to the working class as for as if it's for their good as if they are handing over the reins of government to the working class while they're continuing to do what they want to do in the background. Which is why you get very little pushback when there's social movements. If, the, if people want, the majority of people want gay marriage, the corporations don't care. The the elites don't care. They're like, okay, that's fine. As long as we get to troll, we control the economy 
and the military. You can have society. You can have culture. That's fine. We'll just act like whatever the popular trends are, we're all for. Doesn't matter to us. Doesn't bother us any. Because we're controlling the economy and the military. We have constant imperialism. We are a great nation. We are regulating our competition out of business. We are expanding the empire and American hegemony all across the globe. So, as long as you don't don't mind that your taxes are what ensures your deposits in the bank, as long as you don't mind that it's your money that props up the Federal Reserve, and that when we decide that the Federal Reserve is going to print money, that you're going to experience a tax in the form of inflation, you don't have to directly pay for anything anymore. You don't have to see your taxes go up every April. You just see, you know, your bills, your your mortgages, your grocery bills, your gas bill, your electric bill go up every month by a few cents, couple percent a year. You'll never miss it. As long as you don't mind that we have captured industries As long as you don't mind that we're going to declare war in your name, we'll be acting in covert methods around the world to overthrow governments we disagree with in order to install puppet regimes that will hand over the country's resources to us so that we continue to get wealthier while y'all get poorer incrementally, slowly but surely, a little bit at a time, then yeah, you can have your culture and your social order. That's yours. And we'll convince y'all that that the progressive way of regulations of regulatory capture of militarism and empire is the American way. And we'll come up with a nice little collectivist pledge and a collectivist song and we'll all be good little American progressives. And some of you are going to be 
paleo progressives, and some of you are going to be neo progressives. And so some of y'all are existing in the times of FDR, while the others are existing in the times of Obama. And these good little progressives are going to defend the business interests and the corporate and the, and the governmental interests all around the world for those good little progressives have been through that good little progressive school shot out of those good little progressive shoots after riding on that good little progressive uh, oh I was on a roll I just lost my train of thought Anyway, so, so, you know, this is, this is what America is. America is an empire that's capitalist, capitalist two and a half, capitalism two and a half there. And is this it, it, it's 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 not socialism it's not fascism yes there are elements of socialism there are elements of fascism but this is progressivism this is the natural evolution of the progressive era this is what we're living through today when now socialists in the United States have been biding their time for many, many years, riding those progressive coattails, agreeing with progressives on many, many things. Why? Well, remember, remember uh, what I said about Marxist scholars, there's an understanding among Marxist scholars that the middle class leans conservative, wishing to roll back to days of yesteryear, but with the furtherance of socioeconomic redistribution, you destroy the middle class, creating a revolutionary mindset among the middle class that had acted as a buffer for the bourgeoisie. And the goal of being revolution, the ends justifies the means. The long-term revolution ascending the proletariat to their rightful throne, the supreme of the land, justifies the present pain and suffering of the middle class in order to transform the middle class into revolutionaries. The job of the Marxist is constant evangelism and pressure on the bourgeoisie for incremental reforms that rob the middle class and upper class of wealth, knowing the pain will affect the middle class more immediately. And they will use that pain to recruit the former middle class into their ranks for revolution. Because the point of a riot and a protest isn't the immediate gains. It's the gaining of the numbers. It's those ones that will sympathize with you today. That will see you go through and get pulled into these vans in Portland. And will join your ranks. And will join the revolution. 
and will tear down the establishment. But not in the name of natural law, not in the name of freedom or liberty, in the name of more tyranny, just a different authoritarian. But an authoritarian all the same. So, when you, uh, when you look around and you see the stories, or you see Tucker Carlson talking about the coming generation, is expected to be the first generation that has a lower living standard than their parents? You know that the implementation of progressivism of capitalism through the progressive methods has done exactly what Marx predicted it was going to do and that though some people want to be hyperbolic and call the United States a fascist country a fascist nation it's not fascist that fascism came after progressivism and that that fascism is shares many qualities with progressivism and socialism because before Mussolini created fascism he was a socialist so there are going to be many overlapping um, I don't know commonalities is the word I guess I'm starting to run out of words and my throat's starting to get a little sore from all the talking. But I don't I hope I was clear enough on this episode. I know it's a long episode and I did a lot of talking and reading and tied a lot of you know, a lot of different things together and wanted to bring in definitions and some precision into what I was saying. So I hope it was as clear as I wanted it to be. I really hope y'all got something out of it, but I hope you see what I'm saying that, that the, the predictions that Marx had made about capitalism and the, and, and especially through the, the implementation of progressivism in the United States, that that is why socialism is on the rise in that these people are are properly like good little socialists growing their numbers, growing their ranks, and intentionally so. In that my goal and our goal is a freed market. And the only way that I see forward is in the gray or the black and that attempting to join ranks with revolutionaries is a bad idea because they've intentionally created an atmosphere through incrementalism for a long-term goal of having the rising their numbers, increasing their numbers for the revolution 
and that they continue to do that. When you see moms and dads joining the Portland protesters due to empathy and sympathy for the, the actions of DHS, you can say easily they're continuing to increase the revolutionary numbers. And so it's time for us to get our revolution off the ground, our peaceful agora, uh, agor- agorist revolution and, and get it set in motion. If nothing else, so when the change of guard does come and this inflation does hit hyper level, that we are at least in a position to help ourselves. Because if you can't help yourselves, you're never going to be in a position to help your neighbors. So that was this episode. Um, I did a lot of reading to find the right stuff I wanted to put in there. And like I said, again, I hope I was absolutely 100% clear as I was going through the episode. If there's anything you don't understand, feel free to email me, tommysalmons at gmail.com. Any corrections you'd like to make, maybe I was wrong on some facts. I am susceptible to being wrong. I am not, I do not know everything. I'm just a truck driver, dude. I'm a truck driver that listens to a lot of audio books, reads a lot of philosophy, and hey, decided to start a podcast. If you're not a truck driver and you have more time on your hands to do all these things than I do, hit me up, man. Tommy Salmons at gmail.com. We'll have a conversation. I don't mind talking to anybody. I will talk to absolutely anybody. So anyway, man, I'm Tommy Salmons at gmail.com. Late. Intentions took you to your grave. Your pride is how they killed you with the flag you wave just like a fool. They promised you a mountain, gifted you a stone. They demanded that you throw it into your neighbor's home and then seize all that they worked for. And give it to the throne just like a tool well, As we all just stand in line and glorify new ways of being cruel Seems to me humanity is not something that they're teaching us in school Thumbs down all around propaganda, their pollution. They set a cage up on the stage, a facade for a solution. They build a wall, block them all from this mental institution. It's insane. Now they're writing their own rule books and 
brother's knees If you want a clean drink of water Well, you must say pretty please It's all a game As we all just stand in line And justify these crimes done in our names Seems to me authority and tyranny Are both one and the same Thank you.